Well, friends, we're thinking this week as we've heard about the Trinity, and uh, you'll have an outline on the inside of one of these inserts that you've been given, which, as usual, will give you a, a feel for where we're going as we uh, look at this topic together. Uh, the words of that song were a prayer to God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Let me continue in prayer that God would help us now to understand his word. Our gracious Father, we thank you that your spirit has inspired scriptures concerning your Son. And we pray that as we meet together as your people, as we listen to your word, as we study it now, that you would be with us, that that same spirit would grant us understanding that he would fire our hearts with the truth of these words. And as he does so, our Father, we pray that we might live fervently for the glory of your Son, that in all things you might receive praise and honour, now and forever. Amen. Well, let me ask you a question. Does your name matter? Uh, We've all got little stickers with our names on. It's nice to know who we're greeting and that kind of thing. But does your name really matter? And part of us might think, no, I mean, it's, it's not much more than a label. It's just what somebody yells to get our attention. And uh, in some cases, not a huge amount of thought goes into what we're called. Um, up until the day I was born, I was going to be called William. Uh, and out I came. And my mum decided the day I was born, he's not a William, he's a Sam. It was just a kind of last-minute change of mind. I might just as easily have been called William, and I don't suppose it would have changed a huge amount in my life. Names aren't really that significant. And yet, they are more than a label, aren't they? Our name isn't just what we're called, it's, it's who we are. And our name speaks of us. I'm Sam, I'm not anybody else. And if your name tonight is is William, I'm very happy for you. But um, I'm glad I'm not called William. It's just not me. I'm Sam. I'm not a William. Uh, There's a chap at our church uh, back home who's called John. And I'm sure he was misnamed at birth because I always want to call him Peter. He just looks like a Peter. He's a Petery type of person. Our names do speak of who we are. Our names do matter, and if that's true of us, it is even more true of God. And as we begin, I want us to observe that when Jesus commanded his followers to make disciples of all nations, he instructed that they be baptised in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. That was the identity into which they were to be baptised. That name of Father, Son, and Spirit summed up what they had now as Christians. That name is the Christian name for God. It defines us as Christians. It sets out the God that we worship. It sets us apart from others who would claim to know God. Because the God we know is Father, Son and Holy Spirit. That name takes us to the very heart of who God is and what he's like. And the topic, therefore, tonight is the Trinity. The Trinity is a word, it doesn't come in the Bible, but it's a useful word for describing the truth that God has revealed himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So it matters what we're looking at tonight. It matters if we're Christians, 
Somebody once said, sometimes we need to be introduced to the God we already know. And we need to know what it means for God to be Trinity. And if any of us tonight are not Christians, well, this will take you to the very heart of who Christians worship. Uh, There is perhaps no better introduction to the Christian faith than to think about what it means for God to be Trinity. And yet, we don't find the Trinity easy. Uh, In fact, we find the Trinity very difficult. We have all kinds of problems with the Trinity. We find the Trinity confusing, or at least I do, and I'm sure many of us do. It doesn't seem to make sense that God's sort of one, but he's three, and we don't quite know what what we're supposed to, to make of that. And some people would even go so far as to say, well, you're not supposed to understand it. It's just, a, it's just one of those mysteries. Just kind of leave it alone and to just be confused by it at a distance. So that's one problem. The other problem is that it seems irrelevant. We know we should affirm that God is Trinity. But then, as a doctrine, we sort of stick it in a drawer and leave it. It's a bit like a certificate or a warranty. It's something we know we need to have, but it's not something we really hope on using much. And so we kind of shove it to one side and think, well, every now and then when it's Trinity Sunday or we're saying a special creed, I'll dust it off and and say it again. But it doesn't seem to have much to do with life. It doesn't seem to have much application. Well, if that's the case, we need to understand the importance of the Trinity And there are two reasons why it must matter hugely, even before we open the Bible and look at it. The first reason the Trinity matters is that it has been cherished as a doctrine by Christians for centuries and centuries. I think it's fair to say that more care has been taken to preserve, articulate and defend this truth of the Christian faith than any other. And a good rule of thumb is if something has mattered massively to previous generations of believers and doesn't matter that much to us, it probably means we've missed something. Second reason why it must matter is that it's about God. And any truth about God is going to have practical application and relevance to us. God made this world and he made us. It has his stamp on it. The more we understand him the more we will understand the universe he has made and indeed the more we will understand ourselves and the people he's made us to be. So the doctrine of the Trinity, I am sure, must have practical significance. And so tonight we're really going to answer two questions. Does it make sense? And does it matter? And our two headings are understanding the Trinity, much as we can, and applying the Trinity So firstly, understanding the Trinity, does it actually make sense? What are we saying when we say that God is Trinity? We're saying two things. We are saying there is one God, and we're saying that one God is three persons. There is one God. Let me read to you some very famous words from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4, we read these words. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. A foundational truth about God from the Bible is that he is one. There is one God, one God alone. The universe was not uh, created by a committee. I would suggest it probably never would have got round to having been created if it was uh, down to a committee. God has created everything. 
He is the only God. And so the Bible tells us that there's nothing that's being created that God didn't make. He's made it all. He is the one God of this universe. God is one. And therefore, the passage says, we are to love him with all of our heart and soul and might. Because he is one, he deserves everything. If there were two gods, we could love them half each. But there's one God. And so he has our all. Now that means God is consistent. If God is one, there is an integrity to how he relates to this world. There is a consistency to how he relates to us. But notice too, this one God is named. The Lord, our God, the Lord is one. This one God can be known. He's named himself to us as the Lord. That perspective is not changed in the New Testament. Uh, we still read in the New Testament there is one God and only one God. Whatever else the New Testament shows us about the nature of God and, and specifically about the, the place of Jesus, it is still crystal clear there is one God. There is one God. Uh, a few years ago I moved into a new flat and uh, I didn't have any furniture or anything on the walls and so I went to Ikea and uh, decided to try to ransack the shop and try and get as, as many bits of furniture as I could. And my threshold for shopping generally is about 15 minutes before I, I lose the will to be alive anymore. And so I was getting a bit bored and weary, and all of a sudden, something perked me up. I looked from across the, across the shop, this massive, massive room. I could see in the distance, on the far wall, an image of Darth Vader. And I was kind of thought, I must walk towards that and have a look. And as I walked nearer to this, this big picture of Darth Vader, I thought, there's something strange about that picture. Something's, something's kind of weird about it. And as I walked nearer, I worked out it was a mosaic of lots of different photographs from the film. And when you stood back, it was a picture of Darth Vader. When you came near the front, it was lots and lots of little pictures. As we see that God is one in the Bible... It's as if as we walk closer to God's oneness, we discover that there's a complexity to it. It's not a straightforward oneness. God is one, but as we see a bit more about what it means for him to be one, there is a complexity, which leads us to our second point. There is one God, but that one God is three persons. That one God is three persons. Uh, turn up our first reading, if you would, from Genesis chapter 1 which uh, rather predictably is on page 1. Well then my Bible at home, Genesis 1 is on page 8, which I never quite understood. Genesis chapter 1. God is three persons, and in the Old Testament there are suggestions that this is the case. There are hints that this might be so. So Genesis 1 and uh, verse 26. We see something of the plurality of God. God says in verse 26, let, uh, sorry, well, verse 26, let us make man in our image. This is the first time God has referred to himself. And he says, let us make man in our image. Uh, he doesn't say, let me make man in my image, but let us make man in our image. He speaks as a plurality. And we have that a number of times in the Old Testament. Notice too the Spirit of God. 
back to chapter 1 and verse 2 of Genesis. In the beginning God created the heavens of the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Uh, the Spirit of God we often think of as sort of being the agent of God, God's sort of power, if you like. And it's easy to think of the Spirit as being kind of a bit like God's electricity. It's God's sort of force at work. We'll look at that a bit more later on and see that that's not really who the Spirit is. But notice here, the Spirit of God is God and yet distinct from God. God created the heavens and the earth and in the beginning the Spirit was hovering, poised. He's identified with God and yet he's also slightly distinct the work of God in the Old Testament often has a kind of uh, shape of threeness to it, if you like. Uh, quite a few times in the Old Testament, God will raise up a person, equip that person with his spirit, and work to save his people. God takes a person and fills the person with the spirit. There's often that pattern of threeness in the Old Testament, in the way God saves his people. The angel of God... Uh, a number of times in the Old Testament we have uh, sort of human angelic figures, if you like, who uh, interact with different people in, uh, in the Old Testament, and yet who are then spoken of as God. You get an example with Abraham in Genesis chapter 18. You get uh, Jacob, we're told, wrestling with a man, and then being told he wrestled with God. And again, someone who is separate to God, and yet identified with God. But one of the clearest Science, I think, comes in Isaiah chapter 9, where the king whom God is promising is described in a number of ways, the everlasting father. He's also described as the mighty God, that God's king is going to be divine. The man God is sending to this world will be called mighty God in Isaiah 9 verse 6. Uh, we've not looked up all of those verses. I've put them on the sheet uh, so you can look them up a bit later. We don't have time to to go through all of the references now, but do look them up afterwards. All of those things, at the very least, show that there is a complexity to the way in which God is one. The one God is, in fact, three persons. Uh, back home in my lounge, I have, a, I have a dimmer switch. It's one of those light switches that you can kind of turn down and turn up again. The value of a dimmer switch is that when things are very, very messy... Uh, if you turn down the level of lights, you don't really see the mesh. You sort of see the vague shapes of bits of furniture and that kind of thing. You don't really see all the muck and all the mess. Obviously, then when you turn it up again, you see every bit of dirt and, and debris in all its detail. We see kind of vague shapes of what God is like in the Old Testament. But as we move into the New Testament, it's as if the, the light of God's revelation is turned up to full. And what might have been hinted at or suggested in the Old Testament is now seen with great clarity and in much clearer detail. So we move into the New Testament and see how that speaks of God as being three persons. And turn, if you would please, to John chapter 1. Uh, John chapter 1 and the first few verses. Uh, if you have this Bible, it's page 1068. 1068. As the New Testament reveals to us that God is three persons, it does it by showing us that Jesus 
is fully divine and that the spirit is fully personal. Jesus is fully divine. It's obvious as you read through the Gospels that Jesus is a human. Uh, That is not in doubt. He acts and lives as a human being. He's someone who who can become tired, someone who thirsts, someone who is hungry, someone who needs to sleep, someone who weeps, and ultimately someone who dies. And yet, the Son is also divine. Jesus is also fully divine. So John chapter 1 verse 1 In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God, he he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. Jesus there is described as being the Word of God. And notice that Jesus is both identified with God and yet distinct from God. The Word was God, and the Word was with God. And how we fit those two things together is not entirely clear at this stage, other than the fact there is identification, and yet some measure of distinction. Jesus, the Son, is fully human, but he is also fully divine. And the Spirit is not just divine, that is obvious from the Bible, but in the New Testament we see that the Spirit is personal. He is not just God's electricity. The spirit Jesus refers to as he. He is a person. I don't think you'll get very far if you call your loved one it for very long or a child it. Uh, Persons don't like being referred to as it. Jesus refers to the spirit as he. The spirit is a person. The spirit leads us in Romans 8. The Spirit can be grieved in Ephesians 4. The Spirit can be lied to in Acts chapter 5. The Spirit is fully personal. He is not just kind of spiritual electricity. You can't lie to electricity or upset electricity. No, the Spirit, as well as being divine, is fully personal. And so as those things are clarified, the New Testament can then give us Trinitarian statements This one God is three persons who are fully divine, and yet each of whom is fully personal. So the words we say at the end of each service here at SMAC, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God, it's very strange saying it on your own, I expect everyone to join in, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, a Trinitarian statement. But I think the clearest Trinitarian statement I've put there on the sheets, and that's Matthew 28 verse 19, which I alluded to earlier, when Jesus charges us to make disciples, they are to be baptised in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Notice what Jesus is not saying. He's not saying there are three gods. Jesus does not say the names of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, as if there are three different gods. Jesus is not talking about tritheism, which is the belief that there are three different gods out there. No, there is one name. There is one God. Nor is Jesus saying that there are three aspects to God, which has been known as modalism, the idea that God sort of switches between father mode and son mode and spirit mode. No, Jesus does not say the name of the father, son and spirit, as if they are just aspects of God. 
He says the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. There are three persons there. And yet those three persons share one name. God is one. But that one God is three persons. And I want to suggest there's no contradiction in that because the way in which God is one is different to the way in which God is three. He is one in essence and yet he is three in person. If I was to say God is one in person and three in person, that would be a contradiction. But God is one in essence and three in person. So understanding the Trinity, does it make sense? Um, It does. If it didn't seem to tonight, that's my fault. But it does make sense. We can make some sense of it and have some understanding. But the second question is, does it matter? I mean, so what? It's all very nice and it's good for you know, theologians to have something to kind of keep them off the streets and write books about. But does it actually make any difference to life? So what that God is Trinity? Is it just abstract? I mean, how does it affect me and what I'm doing this week? Well, our second question tonight, does it matter? We're going to be thinking about how we apply the Trinity what difference it makes to our lives that God is actually Trinity and you'll see from the sheets there I've got four areas of application where it does make a difference to us practically the first of course is our understanding of God God is three persons in loving unity therefore God is relational the God who is there is Trinity he's community He is relationship. At the heart of this universe is a God who relates within himself. Three persons relating in loving unity. And that means God himself is relational. We can know him. Our knowledge of God is relational knowledge. Okay, I'm interested in American history and I enjoy reading about American history, but I can't have a personal relationship with American history. You can know lots of things about God, but actually knowledge of God is designed to be personal because God is personal. He's relational, he's sociable, if you like. That relational character of God is eternal. Because God is Trinity and always has been, God has always been relational. And that matters. The qualities that make for a good relationship have always existed in God's nature. God has always been love and truth. You can't have love and truth without relationship. But God has always been relational within himself. And so we can say God is eternally a God of love, eternally a God of truth. It wasn't that when God made the world, he then started to be loving because at last he had something he could have a relationship with. God has always been in relationship with himself. He is eternally loving, eternally truthful. That can't be said of other gods who are not Trinity. Thirdly, it means that God is undivided. The Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit are perfectly united. And so it's not like when you're a kid and you want something so you go to mum and mum says no. So you try and find dad before mum does and ask him because dad's normally a bit bit more of a pushover than mum is. 
And you sort of think, well, dad doesn't know mum said no, so I'll try and butter dad up and maybe dad will say yes. You can't do that with God. These persons are utterly united. So you can't have God without Jesus. And I know people who've said, well, I, I worship God, but I'm, I'm not really interested in Jesus. Well, no, the God who is there is Trinity, and you can't separate that Trinity. You have God by approaching the Father in the name of the Son by the Holy Spirit, or you have nothing to do with God. That is the only way we can know God. Nor can you try and play off one of the persons of the Trinity against another. I've heard somebody say once, he was trying to to sound profound, I think, and he said, well, the Catholic Church has the Father, the Evangelical Church has the Son, and the Charismatic Church has the Spirit. Friends, that is nonsense. That is absolute nonsense. As if Jesus prefers guitars and the Father prefers choirs or something. I heard somebody else say that if you have the Word without the Spirit, it will dry you up. If you have the Spirit without the Word, it will blow you up. That is not just a nonsense, that's a blasphemy. Do you really want to go up to God and say that His Word is dry? or that his spirit is chaotic. No, God the Father, God the Son and God the Spirit live in perfect unity. They are undivided. It must affect how we think of God and how we approach him. Secondly, it affects how we think of ourselves. It relates to our understanding of humanity. So turn back to Genesis chapter 1, uh, back to page, page 2. Sorry to be uh, flicking you back and forth, but it keeps us awake to have to wiggle our fingers every now and then. Look again at Genesis 1, verse 26. And what it means for, for us to be people that God has made. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. That immediately shows us that humanity is special. Uh, Up until now, we saw this as the chapter was read, God had used the the kind of similar formula as he went through and created different things. He said, let there be, or let the land produce. It's a very kind of passive way of speaking. But now God breaks the formula and says, let us make. And it's as if God is especially involved in this act of creation that he's about to do. What he's making now is different. Because what he's making now is something in his image. Let us make man in our image. The point at which God comes to make a creature in his image is the point at which God emphasises his plurality. Let us make man in our image. The person whose image we are made in, the God whose image we are made in, is persons in relationship. Therefore, as those made in his image, we are relational. That is fundamental to our character as human beings. We are made to relate because the God who made us in his image is a God who is relational. Now that matters profoundly and I think we sense this. It is profoundly unhuman to be in solitude. That is why we use it as a punishment. If someone is especially wicked, especially wrong in in what they do, they are put on their own. It is a punishment to be on your own. We are made to relate. Man is not an island. 
if you've seen the movie with Hugh Grant um, about a boy, the kind of lesson he learns in that movie is that we are made to be in relationship with other people. We're not made to live on our own, in our own little island. The character of those relationships are to be loving. Because as we look at the relationships of the Father, Son and the Spirit, they are loving relationships. They are other person-centred. Jesus says the Father loves the Son and gives him all things. We read in the New Testament that the Son delights in obeying his Father and submitting to him. The Spirit glorifies Jesus and points us to him. And so the character of the relationships for which we are made are other person-centred. They're not all about me. If I go into relationships with other people in order just to serve myself, I will not find happiness. If I get married to try and serve myself, I will not lead to happiness. The relationships that we are designed for are relationships that are loving, that look to the interests of the other and serve the other. We know that from experience, but the Bible accounts for it in what it teaches us about the nature of God. Thirdly, unity. And we're on the home straight now. Unity. Notice, please, that the unity of the Trinity is unity in diversity. The Father, the Son and the Spirit are different persons. They have different roles. They relate to each other differently. They're not interchangeable. You can't just sort of swap around the Father and the Son. They have different roles in relation to each other. The Father sends the Son. The Son never sends the Father. The Son obeys the Father. The Father never obeys the Son. There is difference there in the way they relate. Their unity is in diversity, not in sameness. Now that is profound because so much of our world, certainly the the part of the world I come from, is looking for unity in sameness, unity in uniformity. But actually true unity comes in diversity. Uh, Turn, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. This has implications for how we think about men and women. This unity in in diversity is related in gender, uh, reflected rather, in gender. Uh, 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 3, page 1153. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3. Paul says, I want you to understand. Okay, so that means if the person next to you is dozing off, give them a prod, wake up. God wants you to understand something. I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. Now, right now, about 17 different questions are being raised in our, kind of, in our minds as we read that verse. Put them to one side just for a moment and notice this. There is correspondence between the relationships in the Trinity and the relationship between a man and his wife, a husband and wife. Within the Trinity, the father is head of the son. And Paul says, within marriage, the husband is head of the wife. Now, if you can feel hackles rising at this point, please remember something. It is not demeaning for the son 
for God the Son to, to submit to God the Father. Actually, it is an expression of the love between the Father and the Son that they have that relationship. And therefore, it is not demeaning for a wife when Paul says the husband is head of his wife. There is a quality and difference within the Trinity. There is a quality and difference between man and woman. We are made of the same stuff, and yet we are different. The persons of the Trinity are made of the same stuff, and yet they are different. And no inferiority is, is in any way implied by those distinctions in roles. So please, if you are um, a wife here today who is feeling a little bit got at by that teaching, please remember that your model is God the Son who submits to his head gladly. If you are a husband here tonight who is feeling a little bit bolshy because of this teaching, please remember that the Father expresses his headship over the Son by loving him and by giving him every good thing. Unity and diversity is reflected in gender. It's also reflected in the church. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we saw this a few weeks ago as we thought about the uh, gifts of the Spirit. The church is one body, Paul says, made up of different parts. And the differences of the parts mean that the body can function. Uh, If the body was just an eye, it wouldn't be able to walk and talk and do lots of other things. Similarly, the church is made up of people who are different, who have different gifts, different personalities, different abilities. And therefore, because of those differences, we can function as a body. We can function together. Unity is in diversity. And therefore, the Trinity, if you like, if you're someone who's musical, think of it in these terms. The Trinity shows us harmony. Uh, When you have an orchestra playing, if you have an orchestra playing well, you have harmony. Which is to say you have different people playing different tunes, but they all hang together and make one piece of music. Unity in diversity. Not playing in unison. Not just one tune, but different tunes that fit together. Not cacophony, not just everyone doing their own thing and it just being chaotic noise, but harmony. There are two alternatives to this view of unity. One is unity without diversity. That is looking for unity in sameness. Same plus same equals unity. Uh, There'd be a number of different examples of that. Uh, From my understanding, Islam is an example of that. Uh, Because Muslims see God as being a singularity, just one, without any kind of trinity, unity is expressed in uniformity. And you see that reflected in in various aspects of Islamic culture. Uh, Back where I come from, I think the gay lobby is trying to push for unity in sameness. Man plus man equals unity, or woman plus woman equals unity. But no, the Trinity shows us unity comes in diversity, in difference. Another alternative would be diversity without unity. And this might be more of an issue back where I come from than it would be here, I don't know. 
But certainly the kind of classic definition of postmodernism is diversity without unity. Everyone does their own thing. And therefore there's no kind of commonality, there's no togetherness. There's no social harmony or unity from that. So unity is in diversity. If that is the nature of God, it will be how he's wired up his universe to work. Unity is in diversity. Finally, and I think most importantly, the Trinity shows much to us about our understanding of redemption. It unpacks to us how the gospel works in the death of Jesus. Think about the initiative for Jesus going to the cross. Was the Father unwilling? Some people speak as if the Father was unwilling for us, us to be forgiven. It's as if Jesus has to go to a cross and kind of twist the Father's arm to accept us. But no, the Trinity reminds us that God works in unity. It was the Father's pleasure to send the Son. In Isaiah 53, we even read these words, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. In the Hebrew, it speaks of the pleasure of God in the Son being crushed for our iniquity. The Father was not unwilling for our redemption, nor too was the Son. Other people speak as if Jesus was some kind of hapless third party. He just happened to kind of be in the wrong place at the wrong time and got kind of blatted by the wrath of God instead of us. As if it was just a kind of clumsy accident. But no, Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the suffering of the cross. He insisted on going to that cross in Jerusalem. When Peter tried to oppose him, Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. The son was not unwilling. What about the cost? Well, turn to Mark chapter 15. Which is almost our last reference of this evening. Mark chapter 15 and verse 34. Page 1028. As we understand the Trinity, we understand the cost of our salvation, the cost of the death of Jesus. Mark 15, verse 34. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As Jesus bore the penalty for sins, he experienced forsakenness from God the Father. We need to understand that the most beautiful and exquisite relationship that has ever existed in the universe is the love shared between Father, Son and Spirit. And yet for our sakes, that relationship was breached. For your sin and for my sin, the Son was forsaken by the Father. The Father who delights in his Son forsook him for us. The Son who delighted in his Father was forsaken by him for us. It is no cheap thing for us to be forgiven, friends. And the Trinity shows us the depth of the love of the Father and the Son for us that we can be forgiven. Therefore, last reference, 
Romans chapter 8 and verse 32, page 1138. Therefore have confidence, if you are trusting in Christ, have confidence Brothers and sisters, I don't know what you're facing in life at the moment, what pressures you are under, what difficulties you are having to endure, what hardship, what insecurity, spiritual insecurity, or other kinds you are facing. But look at Romans 8 verse 32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he, not also with him, graciously give us all things the father gave up the son for me and for you therefore Paul can say if he's given up his son then of course he will give you all things in time he's not going to give up his son for you and then not follow through with the rest of the deal if God has been willing If the Father has been willing to give up his Son for your salvation, your salvation matters to him. And therefore you can have confidence that the God who began a good work in you will bring it through to completion. However fickle and weak you might feel tonight as a Christian, be assured God has shown us amazing love. He has given us the ultimate, his Son. There is no chance at all that he won't, in his time, give us all the things that he's promised. Does your name matter? Well, possibly. Does God's name matter? Definitely. As Christians, we have been baptised, I hope. If you haven't, have a word with Andrew. You need to be. We've been baptised in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit because that is the Christian name for God. That is the God in whose presence we gather this evening. The Father, the Son and the Spirit. Let's pray. Our Father God, we praise you that you loved us so much that you sent your one and only Son that through faith in him we might be forgiven we thank you for Jesus his willing submission to you as he served us and gave himself for us we thank you for your spirit who has shown us the truth of these things who has prompted us to cry out to you to come to you and to follow you Father, we pray that what we've been thinking of tonight would change us. Please work in us, we pray. Give us understanding where we so often lack it. Help us to live in the light of the kind of God that you are. As we've been baptised in that name, the name of the Trinity, so too would our life reflect the love we see as we look at your love for your Son and your Spirit. Father, we pray by the Spirit 
And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.